0: Let me invite you to turn now to the Gospel of Luke and to the portion concerning Jesus' birth in the second chapter. We'll be looking at a number of different scriptures, or at least thinking about a number of different scriptures tonight, but we'll begin in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, and let's read together now the first seven verses. who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Father, it's been preached many, many times um, that... Our hearts mustn't be like the inn at Bethlehem, but there must be room for Christ in our hearts. And so tonight, Lord, as we consider him again in his birth, and as we consider one particular aspect of his character, help us to have room or to make room in our hearts tonight for the Lord Jesus we ask in his name, amen. I've been reading in recent days in my personal devotional times, those portions of the gospel which describe not the beginning of Jesus' earthly pilgrimage, but actually its ending. I've been reading actually a harmony of the four gospels put together by a man called Lorraine Boatner. It would be helpful to some of you just to get a picture of all the four gospels together, um, and I'm almost at the end. And just this morning, I was reading um, concerning the burial of our Lord, which we considered not long ago in our studies of Matthew's gospel. And as I read again the accounts of Jesus' body being laid in the tomb, there was a certain pathos that came over me, as I remembered that this was the same Jesus whose birthday we are joyfully celebrating during this Christmas season. The man who was laid in that rocky tomb in Jerusalem was once a tiny little baby boy, loved by his parents, laid in his mother's arm, arms upon his birth, and laid by her in that now famous manger bed in Bethlehem. But now, in the passage I was reading this morning, laid down in a very different place, and under very different circumstances, and it's sobering to realize that this will be the fate of us all. We come into this world with such joy and with such promise. We come into the world loved and cared for by our parents and with our whole lives ahead of us, and yet the journey, which begins with such great hope, always ends with tears, doesn't it, and with parting and with separation and with death. And it is well if we remember this strange juxtaposition of life and death, even at Christmas time. It's well if we remember, amid all the appropriate celebrations of the Messiah's birth, that the path of this baby's life was eventually going to wind its way to the grave. And it's well also if we remember that while many of us are rejoicing. This Christmas season, that there are those around of us, around about us, whose circumstances and whose memories seem to carry them much closer this Christmas to the grief of the tomb than to the joy of the maternity ward. Last night, I came across an article that was entitled quite startlingly, startlingly, "Stop Sending Cheery Christmas Cards." It was in ChristianityToday.com on the website there by a lady called Kay Warren. And she was wrestling with the sorts of things that I'm talking about in the wake of the loss of her own adult son last year. In fact, it was her article that was part of the genesis of the thoughts that I'm sharing with you right now. And Mrs. Warren's call um, was that we be thoughtful and sensitive rather than glib and blithely so towards those who find that the holidays bring them reminders of grief rather than of joy and and her call to us to be sensitive is is worth our consideration her words were startling and strong at some places but uh, gave me pause to think (laughs) Jesus did come into the world amid great joy didn't he amid the singing of the angels but it was a broken world into which he came a world plunged into sin and death and misery. A world in which, therefore, he would be called to lay down his very life. And it remains that kind of world today, doesn't it? And we remember that at this time of year, too. Now, of course, there's a very real sense in which... That fact, the fact of of sin and misery and death in the world around us ought not to dampen our Christmas joy precisely for the reason that the babe in Bethlehem came to stamp those things out and to right all those wrongs, right? And he will write them at his second advent. But the fact that the wrongs and the pain remain today, the fact that people are still being laid in graves today means that Even while we circle around the manger at Christmas, we must not allow the tomb to be very far from our field of view, and we must not allow words of comfort and sympathy to be very far from the tips of our tongues either. And so I hope you'll find a place for the balance that I'm trying to encourage this Christmas season and offer to those around you in the words of that famous Carol, tidings of comfort and joy. Both at Christmas time, tidings of comfort and joy. Those are just a few prelimin- preliminary devotional thoughts, trying to bring together the juxtaposition of my own devotional reading about Jesus' burial with the events of his birth that we are rightly celebrating in these days. But then I also want to say to you this evening that these two opposite bookends that I've had in my mind um, even today, these opposite bookends in the life of Jesus, his birth and his burial, his being laid both in the manger and in the tomb, I want to say to you that these two extremes of the pendulum's arc in the life of Jesus actually do, in one very important way, both bespeak the same very vital truth about the Lord Jesus. Both when he is laid in the manger and when he is laid in the tomb, we see in these events his humility. His humility. That's what I want us to think about tonight. Think of the God of the universe, the one who spoke everything that we see into existence and everything that we don't see but that exists just the same. The one who created all these things and upholds them by the word of his power, What does it say to us that this God allowed himself to be picked up and carried and laid down by human beings, whether in a manger or in a tomb? Maybe these are the two points at which Jesus made himself most vulnerable. In becoming an infant, helpless in his humanity, needing to be fed and clothed and laid down by mere mortals, and then in allowing his breath to expire and his body to go limp so that it had to be carried again by human hands and laid this time in a tomb. You see what I'm getting at? In two places in the Bible, we read that Jesus' body was laid down by other people, once in a manger, once in a tomb. And in both instances, it should astonish us that this Jesus, who is very God, a very God, made himself that vulnerable, that he stooped that low, that he humbled himself that deeply so as to be carried around, the God of the universe in a human body carried around by other human beings. And it occurs to me that as we further examine the events surrounding the birth and the burial of our Lord, that we continue to bump up against this same theme, the great humility of our Lord Jesus. And I just want to take you through some of the passages tonight and call your attention to this theme as it arises again and again in the life of Jesus. And I want us to begin um, in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me, this opening chapter of John's Gospel is where we find that great description of who Jesus was even before his human conception in the womb of Mary. And this chapter is also where we have that explanation of what happened when he entered into the womb of Mary. Read with me, beginning first of all in verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and depart from him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Here's the great backdrop to Christ's humility. Here are the truths that help us see just how low Jesus stooped. Because here is a being who never had a beginning. In the beginning, verses 1 and 2, he already existed. And he did not exist as some sort of secondary being to the God who created the heavens and the earth. But he was and is that very God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And because he was God, as I said a moment ago, verse 3, all things came into being through him. And not only did he create all things, but he is the very possessor of life, verse 4, and the giver of light to men. This is our Jesus, is it not? This is whom we love to speak about and whose name we love to hear. The Word who was with God, the Word who was God, the Word who is God. But then look at verse 14, A. And the Word became flesh and dwelt Among us, (coughs) the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What? Did we read that correctly? Did the God of the universe actually stoop to take human flesh? Indeed, to take on a human nature and become fully man? That's what the Bible teaches, isn't it? That's what the Bible says was taking place in those days of old when the power of the Most High overshadowed Mary and she conceived a child by the Holy Spirit. The God of heaven and of earth was becoming a man. The Lord of all the world, as we sang a few moments ago, coming as a child among us. He whom heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain was confining himself to the womb of a young woman in a city in Galilee called Nazareth that none of us would have ever heard of if he hadn't been born there. And I say to you, this was an incredible act of humility. This is the lowest anyone ever stooped. The lowest except for the time when this same Jesus went to a cross and to a tomb. But for now I'm simply saying the very act of becoming flesh was a tremendous act of humility. The very act of Jesus Becoming one of us, becoming human, was a great act of humility. And then when we consider the circumstances in the Christmas story into which he came, all the more so an act of humility. Think about it with me as you remember the accounts in both Matthew and Luke's gospel. Not only did Jesus come as a child among us, but he came into a very lowly situation, didn't he? A situation that would have been humble, even for a normal baby boy, to have been born into. And allow me just to give you three bullet points along these lines. Thinking about Jesus' birth and the humility of the circumstances. First of all, consider his parents. Consider his parents. Mary and Joseph had a couple of strikes against them in terms of respectability in society. First of all, they were poor. They were poor. How do I know that? Well, let's look again at that passage that we read a couple of Wednesdays ago now, over in Luke chapter 2, verse 21 and following. We considered uh, 21 through 38 two weeks ago, but tonight let's just read Luke 2, 21 through 24. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Mary and Joseph were godly parents. They were upright parents. And they set apart their firstborn son to the Lord, as it is written in Exodus chapter 13. And they brought the sacrifice that new parents were to bring, as it is written in Leviticus 12. And the nature of that sacrifice lets us know that Mary and Joseph were among the poor. Because Leviticus 12, that describes the sacrifice that new parents were to bring, commands that a new mother... Bring for her sacrifice one lamb and one bird, either a pigeon or a turtle dove. One lamb, one bird. But then at the end of Leviticus 12, there is a caveat. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And which did Mary bring? Did she bring the normal offering or did she bring the lesser amount designated for those who couldn't afford it? Luke tells us in verse 24 what she brought, doesn't he? Mary and Joseph could evidently not afford a lamb to sacrifice at this time of the birth of their son, but only the two birds instead. And that lets us in on the fact that they were not well off. And this is the family into which God chose to send his son. These were the parents whom the Lord gave to his son Jesus. He sent him to be born into this humble estate. And then, still under the heading of Jesus' parents, let's not forget that they were unmarried at this point too. Now they were unmarried for good reason, as you know because both of them understood that the child had been conceived by the Holy Spirit, and so Joseph chose wisely in Matthew chapter 1 to keep Mary a virgin until she gave birth. But the world around them evidently wouldn't have known such things about this baby, and Mary's pregnancy, therefore, would likely have been a scandal. And we can sense that when we read that when Joseph first found out she was pregnant in Matthew chapter 1— And before he knew the reason why she was pregnant, he planned to send her away secretly. He planned to end the engagement. And the reason why he planned to do so secretly was to shield her from disgrace, which demonstrates that there was still some level of shame attached in those days to sexual misconduct. I know that may surprise us today, but in those days, if you're sleeping with someone out of wedlock, there was disgrace attached to it. And It may be hard for us to fathom, as I said, living in this day where for many people anything goes, but Joseph knew that if he cut off this betrothal because Mary was pregnant out of wedlock, that would immediately bring scandal down upon her head, and so he didn't do it. But, of course, Joseph could only have held off the scandal for so long because whatever he did about the engagement, she was eventually going to begin to show, wasn't she? And so we can surmise that even though Joseph did the right thing, tongues probably began to wag in Nazareth when Mary's belly began to be more full every single month. She wasn't a scandalous woman, but she perhaps lived in those days among scandal nonetheless. And Joseph would have had to have dealt with it too. And though we don't know for sure, we might imagine that much of the celebration that normally comes with a first pregnancy was seriously muted at this time. And this, this is the situation into which the Lord sends his son born into a reproach that neither he nor his parents deserved. I say again, it required great humility for Jesus to come in to such a situation and to commit to such a plan. And then there's the humility associated humility associated not only with his parents but with his birthplace as well his birthplace we read a little while ago in Luke 2 that Jesus was born in the city of David in Bethlehem which because of its association with David the king was surely still at least somewhat on the map in people's consciences I don't think we can doubt that and yet Though people knew of Bethlehem, it had been a long time since Jesse and his sons had kept watch over their flock by night in the fields outside the city. And so while Bethlehem still may have been known in Jesus' day, it doesn't seem like it was really all that big a deal anymore. After all, the prophet Micah, when he speaks of Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah, refers to it as, quote, too little to be among the clans of Judah. As though... Perhaps Micah is saying, no one would really expect Bethlehem, I mean, expect the Messiah to come from you, Bethlehem. Maybe Bethlehem was a little bit something like Point Pleasant, Ohio. I wonder if anybody knows where Point Pleasant, Ohio is. It's just east of here, and it is the birthplace of the great general and United States president, Ulysses S. Grant. Now that I tell you where it is, chances are some of you have been there and visited the little house in which the president was born. Thankfully, it's still well preserved and the location is still known to us today. But if you go there, Point Pleasant is probably not the sort of place that you would look around and be inspired to think that another United States president might be born here just about any time now. And that's what the prophet Micah seems to be saying about Bethlehem. It does not appear to have been a major center of art or culture or learning or population, but this is where Jesus would breathe his first breaths in this world. This is where the angels would come in the region roundabout to announce his birth, the little town of Bethlehem. And again, I say it was a humble thing for father and son to make a plan that Jesus be born there. There. And at a time when little town though it was, the Roman census was on. And so all the beds in the local inn were full. And Mary and Joseph had to find less than desirable accommodations. And they had to lay their child, not in a cozy little cradle, but in a manger. In the place where the animals licked up their supper. A feed trough. Have you ever seen a feed trough? Probably not the kind of place you'd want to lay your boots for the night, much less your baby. Now, I thought about it today, and I'm sure Mary kindly asked Joseph to give this particular feed trough a good scrubbing. And I'm sure that Joseph complied, but still, a manger. That's where we're going to lay the baby? Yes. It gives you a glimpse of the sort of means that Mary and Joseph had at their disposal. They didn't put Jesus in a manger because they were careless. Surely they would have done differently. They would have done more. They would have done better for their son if they could have. But this was all they could do. And they did the best that they could. And yet God, who is sovereign, ordained that it be this way. He could have ordained that there be room in the inn. He could have opened a room in the inn that very night, but he didn't do it. And the result is that here's the Lord Jesus, who has spent eternity past sitting on a throne, Isaiah 6, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple. Here he is now, coming into little old Bethlehem, and the only place his parents have to set him down is in a feed trough. And he knows before he comes that this is all the bed that will be available to him. And I say to you again, this is a great step down of humility. And then look thirdly, not only at his parents' and his birthplace, but also look at his worshipers. Remember that in heaven, Jesus was sitting on a throne. And remember also that while he was sitting there, he was ringed by seraphim with these glorious wings, six apiece, and these thunderous voices singing antiphonally, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's what Jesus left. Now, of course, there were angels singing for his birth, too. Glory to God in the highest. But they were out in the fields, somewhere outside Bethlehem, getting the attention of the shepherds and praising God before the shepherds. But when we draw near to Christ's little earthly throne, his manger throne, we do not find glorious angels there. We find humble shepherds working the night shift and smelling like sheep. Now... I know that the Magi are on their way with their gold and their frankincense and their myrrh so that Christ's birth wasn't all obscurity and lowliness. But on that first night, the night when human beings first set eyes on the Messiah, he found himself surrounded not by seraphim with six wings and loud singing, but by a little collection of local farmhands from out in the fields outside the walls of Bethlehem. And I tell you, that all of this was by design, and all of it points to the humility of our Savior, to his condescension to the race of men, to his willingness to associate with the lowly, his willingness to set aside so many privileges that were his by right in order to come and walk among us. That's an amazing thing. And of course, The great humility of the Lord Jesus, this willingness to bend low in condescension toward his people, is not only observable in his birth, but all throughout his life in this world. And that would be a wonderful study for some of you, uh, perhaps this Christmas season, just to read through one of the Gospels and notice all the evidences of the humility of Jesus all the examples of his bending low, all the times when he did not demand his rights but freely gave them over, all the times when Jesus did with less and when he associated with the lowly. This was always true of the Lord Jesus, great humility. But I want to fast forward tonight and show it to you at the other end of his earthly pilgrimage, the other time when he literally made himself so helpless that he had to be carried by another, and laid down by their hands in his resting place. I want you to see the humility of Jesus, his commitment to become and remain lowly, even in the way that he was buried. Jesus, of course, didn't humanly affect the way he was buried any more than he humanly affected the way he was born. But in his divine nature, it was he along with the Father and the Spirit who planned all the details of these things and brought them about just as it is written. And the details demonstrate once again Christ's humble state. For instance, look at the small funeral party who laid Jesus to rest in that tomb. They were a little less motley, perhaps, than those who had gathered around his manger 33 years before, but there was only a small handful of them there, a few women who were looking on and preparing to come back later and care for the body, and only two men to bear the pall, according to John 19, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Leaders among the Jews they were, yes, but only two of them, and neither one of them a member of. The twelve, And of course, there were reasons of safety and reasons of politics that made the crowd at Jesus' burial such a small one. But it's actually quite fitting, isn't it, that Jesus would be buried in this way, especially when we remember the humble gathering that celebrated his birth. Jesus was and Jesus is very God of very God, but he chose to live a human life that was so often of the most unassuming proportions. And we see it at his graveside. Indeed, just look at where they laid him, in a borrowed manger in Bethlehem, and now in a borrowed tomb a few miles down the road in Jerusalem. There are some striking parallels between the birth and the burial of our Lord Jesus. In both cases, he was cared for by a man named Joseph Joseph. And in both cases and with both Joseph's, we might have almost understood had they chosen not to be involved at this point. But Joseph and Joseph showed great courage in standing against the tide in both cases to care for the Lord Jesus. And then in both cases, at his birth and at his burial, Jesus' body was wrapped in a cloth and laid in a place that was not originally intended for him at all, at least not. Intended by human beings. In both cases, the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head and had to borrow a spot that had been allocated for other purposes. And in both cases, the crowd that gathered to mark the occasion was not what you might have expected given the stature of the Lord Jesus. And all of this, I say, was by design. This is how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit drew it up. Jesus came into the world with with very little pomp and circumstance, and he went to the grave in much the same way on purpose because he wanted to truly condescend to us and associate with the lowly and demonstrate the nature of true humility and leave us an example that we might follow in his steps. And that is what I want to leave you with tonight. I hope it's been somewhat interesting to look at Jesus' birth and his burial and to see the common thread of humility woven through it all. But I don't want you just to be interested or mentally satisfied that you've seen something interesting in the Bible. I want you to see in it an example of what we ought to be as we follow after this Jesus. If Jesus could spend his first night's sleep in a feed trough. And that says something, doesn't it, about whether or not we really have to always have the best and the brightest for ourselves and for our kids. If Jesus could be born to poor parents, then that says something, doesn't it, about how we ought to associate with the lowly, Romans 12:16, and not look down on those whom we might Otherwise, in our sin, presumed to be somehow beneath us. If Jesus could be born to parents who may have been living, even in those days, under the upturned noses of people who wrongly thought them to be immoral, then that says something about how much or how little we should always be worried about defending ourselves and manicuring our own reputations. If Jesus could trade in the worship of the angels for that of a handful of farmhands from Judea, then surely we don't always have to worry about how loudly others are praising us for our accomplishments for the Lord. And if Jesus could be buried in a borrowed tomb, then maybe we don't really have to act as though our lives consist of the abundance of our possessions. Humility. That is one of the great lessons of Christmas and of the cross and of the tomb. As Paul put it in Philippians 2, Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me read you that again. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing, in other words, to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul says, look at the incarnation. Look at the kind of man that Jesus came to be. Look at the way he died and you will see... Humility, and all of that Paul wrote in a context in which the main idea of the sentence is, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. I read you the last part of the sentence. That's the first part of the sentence. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That is what the apostle wants us to do. When we look at the incarnation of Jesus, when we look at the humble way in which he lived, when we see the humble way in which he died, be like that. Now, yes, of course, we should marvel, first of all, that the word became flesh and that he was lifted up on the cross and that he went down into the tomb in order that he might honor his father and save us because we haven't been humble like he is. That's the first thing we must see when we look at any portion of Christ's life and ministry. He did all that he did because we haven't imitated him. We haven't been what we should, but he did what he did because that was what was required to glorify the father and to save his sinful people. That's what we should see most of all when we look at the life and the ministry of Jesus. But Paul says that's not all we should see when we look upon the humility of Christ. We should see, says the New Testament, not only our Savior, but also our model, our example, our pattern. In this case, our pattern of true humility. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Humble yourself the way Jesus did when he came to this earth and when he went to the cross. Do not always demand your rights. Jesus surely didn't do that when he came to Bethlehem, did he? Do not presume that you must have the best of everything and don't be embarrassed if you frankly don't. Jesus wasn't in his manger bed Do not be offended by every slight or feel that you must jealously defend your own reputation. Jesus chose to be born to an unwed couple. And on a positive note, put other people ahead of yourself the way Jesus did when he left heaven for you. Associate with the lowly the way Jesus did all his life long, beginning with his own parents. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus when he was laid in Bethlehem's manger and when he was laid in a borrowed tomb and at every point in between.